So Money Episode 837, Dan Pink, author of When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. During the peak, that's when we are most vigilant. And what does vigilance mean? Vigilance means we're able to bat away distractions. So that makes the peak the best time for analytic work, crunching numbers, Mm -hmm. going over data, writing a report. When is your peak time of the day? Knowing this can make a huge impact on your finances, your health, and so much more. Welcome back to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. You just heard from Daniel Pink. He is our guest today, author of several books. You've probably heard of him, multiple New York Times bestseller. His his previous books are Drive, To Sell as Human, and A Whole New Mind. His most recent is called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And in it, Dan shows us the essential keys to timing our decisions and actions so that we can thrive both professionally, personally, and as we discuss on the show, financially. If you're asking yourself questions like, when should I wake up every day? When should I work out? When should I ask my boss for that raise? And maybe when should I quit my job? Dan has the answers. Here we go. Here's Dan Pink. Dan Pink, welcome to So Money and Happy New Year to you. Uh, thanks, Farnoosh. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's just dive right in. Your latest book is about time. The title is When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. There are a lot of books, a lot of content, a lot of content around time. We're a society that's obsessed with optimizing time. What was, what was your specific curiosity around this topic and what for you felt unanswered? Um, my curiosity was really born of frustration. Um, and you know, I was making all kinds of when decisions in my own life. Well, you know, when should I do this kind of work? When should I do that kind of work? When should I take a break? When should I start a project? When should I abandon a project that's not working? And I was making these decisions in a very sloppy way and that frustrated me. And so I guess the question that I asked myself was, okay, how can I do this better? So I looked around for guidance. It wasn't there. And then that just got me thinking, hmm, I wonder if there's any science out there on this topic. And it turned out there was a huge amount of science out there on this topic across many, many disciplines. Uh, And it gives us a lot of clues about how to make these decisions in a smarter, more evidence-based way. Your book actually found that timing has a profound effect on everything from education to the justice system, criminal justice system, job performance, relationships, health. We're an audience here that's obsessed with money and also Uh career. Were there any findings that correlated as far as, you know, optimizing time and your money? Oh, well, I mean, for, for most of us, it, you know, and certainly the folks listening to your uh, podcast, Farnoosh, and, and even, even you and me, you know, the most important aspect of our money is, is our work, our talent. That is the source of our, of, of, of our, of our value. And one of the things that 
this research shows is that when we do certain things in the day has a huge effect. That is our brain power, which is the source of our income. Our brain power does not stay the same throughout the day. It changes. It changes in significant ways. It changes in um, predictable ways. And so if we are able to do the right work at the right time, we are going to perform better, period. Now, on, on when it comes to things like savings and things like that, you know, like market timing, that's a fool's errand. But mm-hmm. as anybody knows, um, you, you know, Einstein once said the most powerful force in the universe is compounding interest. So um, if you're going to start saving and investing, doing it earlier is far better than doing it later. Right. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of studies out there that promote there's a concept of waking up early. There are a lot yeah. of books out there too. Is that significant? I mean, you talked about optimizing, you know, your brain has certain optimal power throughout the day. And is it is it that most of us are hardwired to be morning risers and we should do more during our early hours or not? You know, I'm glad you asked that because this idea that everybody should get up early, in some cases insanely early, is totally <laughs> oversold. It really is. Thank God. Uh, yeah, it really is. But and he, here's what we know. All right. So let's 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 start with what we you know, and a lot of that advice just comes is kind of exhortation. It's not based on any real science. So let's talk about what science actually knows about this. It begins with something called a chronotype, which is are we morning people or evening people? That sounds like folklore. It's not. There's actually a whole field called chronobiology that has studied this. About 15% of us are very strong morning people. About 20% of us are very strong evening people. But most of us, two-thirds of us, are in between. We're, um, you know, we're not larks. We're not owls. We're third birds. And here's what the research tells us. We tend to move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, and a rebound. A peak, a trough, and a rebound. About 80% of us move through the day in that order. We have our peak early in the day. We have a trough in the middle of the day, early to mid-afternoon. And then we have this recovery period late in the afternoon and into the, into the evening. Now, about 20% of us, it doesn't work that way at all. Uh, about 20% of us are night owls, and we have our peak in the, in the late afternoon, early evening, well into the evening. And what we know about these different stages is that we are better at doing certain kinds of work during these different periods. So during the peak, that's when we are most vigilant. And what does vigilance mean? Vigilance means we're able to bat away distractions. So that makes the peak the best time for analytic work crunching numbers, Mm. going over data, writing a report, all right? The recovery period late in the day for most of us, not for all of us, but for most of us, that's a really interesting period because our mood is at really the highest point of the day. However, we're less vigilant, but that combination makes it a very good time for tasks requiring mental looseness. Um, Things like, um, uh, brainstorming would be a good example of that Mm. or iterating new ideas. Now, during that middle period, that trough period, that's a terrible time of day. Uh, there is there are a pile of evidence showing that performance in basically every realm of life declines precipitously during that period. So in short, what we should do is this. We should be doing our analytic work during our peak whenever it is. And one out of five of us have our peak late in the day, you know, in the evening. We should be doing our administrative work during that trough period, work that doesn't require brain power or creativity, and we should be doing our creative work 
um, during our recovery period, which for most of us is late in the day. But the idea that there's a single way to do things, that all of us should be waking up at four o'clock in the morning um, is utter nonsense. Maybe that's why so many cultures uh, take naps, siestas <laughs> in the you're, middle you're of the total, day. You're totally right. Yeah. You're absolutely right about that. And that and that you actually see what's happening now is that certain kinds of very old practices, um, you know, sort of, I don't want to say ancient, but sort of traditional practices are very much in sync with what we know about breakthrough, you know, several breakthroughs in human biology and in, in sleep science. So there is, you know, and, and there's actually a lot of research now on napping. Um, and what it shows is that naps are actually pretty good for us. Uh, however, the best naps are extremely short, 10 to 20 minutes long. So I don't think, you know, you, you know, I don't, I don't think it's time to call for, you know, you know, uh, a mod, you know, a siesta where, Every afternoon, we take off three hours and eat a giant plate of paella and drink three glasses <laughs> of red wine. But there is a there is a logic behind breaks, and actually, one of the most exciting areas of research actually is this research on the science of breaks. And what we know is we should be taking more breaks, particularly in that danger zone, uh, and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks. One of the things that you discovered is that when people begin their careers matters a lot. Oh, yeah. Right? And a lot of our audience, for those of us listening who may be in our 20s, perhaps graduated or, you know, in the recession or um, you know, in the thick of the recession, you know, in that case, the timing was not great. But to, to some extent, that's not in your control. And, and so how do you reconcile when you know that timing matters for certain things like career choices and career moves, but sometimes it's not really anything that's within your power because it necessarily, you know, it, because you're graduating at the wrong time or because the, the market does its thing and who can control that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's such a great it's such a great question, and it's such a great point. Um, so you're you're referring to some research from uh, Lisa Kahn at Yale, and she found, and it, it it's daunting that um, that gr- the the difference that the difference between graduating in from college in a recession and graduating from college in a boom time that shows up in people's wages literally twenty years later. Wow. Um, it, it, yeah, it's 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 a huge deal, and. To some extent, you don't. Ha- to a large extent, you don't have control over it. Like if you if you graduate from college this year, twenty nineteen, you're going to be going out into a you know probably a four percent unemployment rate. Uh, if you graduated ten years early, you'd be going out into an eight percent unemployment rate. Very different. So so in terms of what to do about it, it's important to understand the mechanism at work here. Why this is the case? Why this initial conditions of your career have such an outsized effect on your earnings? 20 years later. And this gives us some clues about what to do about it. The reason essentially is this, that early in our career, when we're looking, when we're, when we're taking jobs, we're looking for the right match between our skills, our capabilities, our personality, and, um, and basically careers, professions, even, even employers. And we very rarely get that match right right away. And so what happens is, is that you try to make the match, you find that's imperfect, you go to a new job that's a, that's a better match. And one of the things that labor economists have shown us is that switching jobs is a pretty good way to increase your salary. Um, and so what happens is, is that 
um, early in our careers, we, we tend to have multi, more jobs than usual because we're finding that right match. Hey, this is not quite the right match for me. This is not the quite right, right match for me. And so we move from job to job, usually often getting higher and higher salaries. But when you're in a downturn, when you're in a recession, when the unemployment rate is high, you can't move. All right. So, hey, I'm in this job and it's not a great match for me. I'd like to move. Wait a second. There's no jobs out there. I'm stuck here. So I start making my moves later. I find my right match later and I'm behind the person who is I'm behind the person who is actually able to be who is in a more fluid labor market is able to move from job to job more easily. So so what so it's hard to do anything about it. I think if you graduate in a recession, it's 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 very important to just be as 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 vigilant as you can in in trying to make the right match each time you switch. Um, if the labor market is looser, you can be a little bit looser about, about making those matches. But it's one of those things where there's some aspects of timing we can do a lot about. Other times, uh, we can't do anything about. And from my mind, I think this is a, a policy problem. So, you know, I, I think that if students graduate from college in high unemployment, that a certain level of unemployment rate should trigger, say, student loan forgiveness or trigger extra job search capabilities or something like that, because it's akin to a natural natural disaster. Not anybody's fault, but it has big human consequences. Here's another conundrum. So you may know your own chronotype. You talked about owl, lark, third bird. Yeah. To some extent, though, when you want to time, let's say, asking for a raise or asking yeah. for a promotion, you have to know your other the other party's chronotype to some extent, too. When's a good time to hit up this other person for a favor, for an ask, for a negotiation? Um, is there any way to analyze this in others? It's tough. Uh, you can make you can make intuitive judgments about that. You can also just play the odds. Uh, so let's talk about like ask, asking for a raise. What we know, so let's you know what we know is that about eighty percent of us are not owls. And in an oversimplified way to think about this, are owls and not owls. So about eighty percent of us are are not owls. And we there's some interesting research in decision making that shows the following. Um, uh, and, and you can see this in judicial decision making and other kinds of realms. When we confront somebody with a decision, ask them to make a decision. Okay, we're selling something. Do you want to buy this? Uh, we, you know, we're 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 asking somebody out on a date. We're asking our boss for a raise. When people are confronted with those kinds of things, they have a default answer in their pocket. And the default answer is almost always no, right? So what does the research tell us about when people are more likely to overcome the default? And what the research tells us is that in general, people are more likely to overcome the default early in the day and immediately after breaks. So for your boss, again, just the odds are you can play the odds a little bit better. Ask your boss for a raise early in the day or immediately after she's had a break. Your odds are going to be up a little bit. Um, and, and the odds here are really important. I know that you and your, your audience understands math and probabilities here. It, it, let's say you're selling something. All right. Uh, and your, your, your prospect is more likely to overcome the default early in the day and immediately after the break. It doesn't mean that doing it then guarantees you're going to get the deal. What it probably means is that um, in ordinary circumstances, there's a 9% chance you're going to make the sale. But if you get the timing right, maybe you boost that up to an 11% chance. All right. You still got a 90, 89% chance of getting a no. But 
if you're doing something over and over again, that two percentage point advantage will pay off over the long run. It can't hurt. It can't hurt. You mentioned you were drawn to this topic due to your own personal frustrations. So what is something that you've discovered that has directly impacted and benefited your life as re- with regards to timing things? Oh, all, all kinds of things. I mean, on so many different, uh, so many different dimensions, Farnoosh. So, uh, uh, like one of the things that you reminded me of was was this this early this early morning thing. All right. So, what, like I was wondering, when in the day should I exercise? And I had always kind of received the message that the um, that 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 really good people always exercise in the morning. All right. Which you do is you get up. And you do your workout and you're ready to go for the day. And what the research tells us is this. The right time of day to exercise depends on what your goals are. So morning exercise is good for some things. It seems to be good for weight loss. seems to be good for habit formation. It's good to give you an enduring mood boost. But afternoon exercise is good for other things. Afternoon exercise is a way to avoid injury. People are less likely to be injured in the afternoon mm. probably because <laughs> I think it's because our, our it's true because our, our body temperature changes over the course of a day. And so in the, in our body temperature reaches its apex in the late afternoon and early evening. Uh, so we're literally more warmed up than we would be in the morning. Um, what you also see is performance is greater. So our lung function is higher. Our hand-eye coordination is better. And also people enjoy it more in the afternoon and probably because of that. So I'm an afternoon exerciser now because when I exercise in the morning, I hated it. Um, I really did. And when I exercise in the, in the afternoon, it's like, oh, I kind of like exercising now, but wait a second. I'm not enough of a badass because I'm not uh, exercising in the morning. That's nonsense. So I change when I exercise. Um, I'm someone who is more of a lark than an owl. So I hit my peak, uh, in the morning. And so, uh, as a writer, I actually have reconfigured my schedule so that in the mornings I totally clear the decks. Um, and so on writing days, I will go into my office. I will not bring my phone with me into my office. I will not open up my email. I will give myself a word count, uh, and I will not do anything else until I hit that word count because I know that the, the time when I am most vigilant is fleeting. It's just a few hours in, in the morning. And if I don't seize that time, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to make a mistake. And so I actually changed my writing schedule and, and no, no joke. This is the, I've written six books. This is the first one I delivered by the deadline. Congratulations. Yeah. What a, what a great accomplishment. Um, and, and so there are other kinds of things here too. So one of the, um, there, there's so much good stuff in here that, that changed truly how I do things. So let's take good news and bad news. So someone says, I've got some good news and some bad news. My practice always was to give the good news first and then the bad news. And the reason was I didn't want to seem like a jerk. I wanted to lay down a cushion. I thought people would tune me out if I hit them with the bad news. What the research tells us is that four to five people prefer to get the bad news first and then the good news. And this is part of this larger body of research on endings because given a choice, Hmm. human beings prefer endings that elevate. We prefer rising sequences at the end to declining sequences at the end. So I no longer do good news, bad news. I do bad news and then good news. I like that. And that, that does, that makes a lot of sense. You want to end on a high note. Well, looking back at your career, and this has been, this is such a treat for me, Dan. I didn't even, I'm, I'm, I'm containing a lot of my fangirling right now. I'm, I'm, I'm super, um, 
highly re- respect your work and it's Thanks a lot. been trying to get you on the podcast for a long time. So glad you finally had another book. I'm like, great now, <laughs> now is my, my moment. Now talk about good timing. Um, but let's give listeners a little bit of background on, you know, how you arrived at being this multi New York Times bestselling author and thought leader. You worked in politics for, I understand, about 10 years. And then you kind of had this moment where you were like, why am I still doing this? To use your <laughs> words, crap. Um, yeah. You were seeking more autonomy. It led you to exploring, um, you know, a, autonomy and then writing your first book. You quit your job in 1997 if you left the White House to venture out on your own. Looking back at your timing of leaving politics and entering your field today, anything different you would have done? That's such an interesting question. I, I, I truly haven't, I haven't, I haven't thought about that. Uh, I mean, what's weird is that, so, 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 uh, so I was deeply interested in politics when I, earlier in my life and, and I was fortunate enough to start working in that field and, and, um, and get some pretty cool and interesting jobs. But uh, at a certain point, I realized that I didn't really like it very much. Uh, and I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in politics because it was so, you know, so corrosive. Now, what's amazing about that is that 20 years ago were the good old days. Um, and so I can only, I shudder to think if I'd stayed working in politics for the next 20 years, uh, and was still working in it today. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a there's a there's a existential issue here too about how do we and it goes back to what we were talking about before about finding that right match. Um, a lot of us a lot of us get counseled. Oh, find your you know what's your passion? Do what you're passionate about. I think that's a, a very very stupid piece of advice um, because like like I'm a writer, right? I've been writing for. Uh, on my own for 20 years. If you were to say to me, is writing your passion? I would say, I don't know. Cause writing is really hard. It's really hard to write books and you know, I don't love it every day, but to some extent it's what I do. And I think that's a more important question. What do you actually do? And one of the things that allowed me to make this transition or gave me hints about the transition was Throughout my 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 young adulthood, from the time I was literally in high school to the time I was um, actually working in in the White House, I was always writing articles, quote unquote, on the side. All right, it was like a hobby. You know, some people I don't know what hobbies people have. You know, they do archery or they raise poodles or whatever they do. All right. For me, it was like I just thought of it as a hobby, something I did on the side. And I realized that no matter how demanding the workplace was that I was in, I was always doing writing, quote unquote, on the side, writing articles, writing magazine, magazine pieces and so forth. And it took me literally into my early 30s to say, wait a second, this thing that I'm doing on the side is probably what I should be doing for reals. Um, and I, and I find that that story is, is, is typical to many people's stories. We have to frob around a little bit, find out who we are, make mistakes, make detours. Um, and as frustrating as it is, and I was very frustrated, um, it's a natural part of finding, finding our way. And what worries me a little bit is that I see some people say in, in college right now who are so maniacally directed and planning everything out, I, I, I worry that they're actually going to find the wrong path and that, and that the fact that they have eliminated any ambiguity, any uncertainty is going to come back to haunt them. I think I agree with all of that. I think what 
also happens along the way as you are at the crossroads of, do I maintain this rather relatively mundane path of doing the job or, right. you know, do what I actually enjoy as a hobby, turn that into something I do full time is that I think the missing link sometimes is having a financial cushion, totally right. Financial runway. And so, uh, you know, w- would love for you to share a little bit about how you navigated that yeah. financially. I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you asked that question because a lot of times when we talk about these things, we end up kind of um, splashing around in the pond of self-actualization and mm-hmm. not talking about these nitty-gritty things. So I'm so glad you did that. So here's so here's here's what here's what I did in 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 my case. Um, so I was in, and I and I was very fortunate. Uh, I was married. I'm still am married. Same person. <laughs> All right. So I, at the time I was married. And uh, when I decided to leave my steady job to go out and try to make it on my own as a writer, my wife did not leave her job. She did not give up her health insurance. Okay. So it was this very kind of calculated risk. And we also said, hey, let's give this maybe a couple of years and see if it works. If it doesn't work, we'll go back to the other thing. So that's one thing. It's like making a calculated risk. The other thing that I've noticed is, 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 I mean, it's as self-evident as it sounds for people who go out on their own, um, low overhead. I find that people spend too much money on their enterprise uh, because they think that that's the way to be quote unquote professional, that that's the way to be quote unquote real. And so I am a devout believer in, in, in low overhead. Uh, I also uh, think that in general, you shouldn't leap from a job to going out on your own right away, that you should try to do it on the side, do a side hustle. It's all about, I think, successful entrepreneurs, successful people, and I don't, I don't even mean people building big companies, but people who are just doing what they want to do, doing cool things, directing their own lives. They are very shrewd assessors of risk. They're not wild and woolly crazy people. They are very astute assessors of risk. And you have to do everything you can to mitigate that risk, um, uh, especially financially. So I I had been uh, at the start was just maniacally conscious of that. Again, I had the good fortune to be married um, and to have a wife who had a job and and health insurance. But um, um, but even now, I mean, 20, I mean, for 20 years, 20 plus years later, I literally have never had an office outside of my home because the idea of paying rent to somebody else just made me kind of nauseous um, <laughs> because, because, because of the cost. So right. I'll spend money in my business on technology mm-hmm. and I'll spend money on talent. Um, but on this other kind of stuff, no freaking way. Well, thank you for sharing that, Dan. I, it's, it's, I, I love hearing the behind the scenes. And, and you're right. I think uh, it's not maybe a sexy headline, but it is what – what supports successful entrepreneurs in becoming successful entrepreneurs. It's planning, it's strategy, it's not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Exactly. The stories of living in your car for a year and, you know, eating tuna fish out of a can until you started Facebook, that could be a great headline, but it's not, it's an outlier story. And, um, I think the it's it's more important to share what's really happening behind the scenes. So that's super inspiring. Two more questions for you on the topic of money. The first is our show is sponsored by Chase. And what we're asking our guests this month is what is your financial res- resolution or you know goal in, in the new year? Um, so I actually do have one here. So my, one of my financial goals is to um, keep a better – 
um, uh, like a month to month track on how I'm doing financially. I tend to basically check in periodically over the course of a year rather than keep a keener eye on it month to month. I don't think that we should be looking at our finances necessarily every single day. But, you know, I'll check in like once a quarter. Hey, how am I doing? Oh, wow. This is not as good as I thought. Uh Oh, um, and so uh, one of my resolutions is to, is to pay attention more to the, um, you know, the week to week, my week to week finances. Yeah, which begs the question, as you were researching time, did frequency come up at all? Like, are, are there better frequencies for doing things once a month, twice a week? You know, that's a great question. I don't know the research. I don't know the research on that. Um, uh, there's a lot of research, though, on, you know, on habituation and so um, and, and, and ritual ritualizing things. So so one thing that would make this easier, I have not done this and you're making me think that I should, is essentially schedule a, um, you know, 15 minutes every Friday, put it in my calendar as a recurring thing in the afternoon to look at the, um, look at what was the, what was the income that came in? What what were the expenses that went out? Uh, and even things on like my family's personal uh, savings and investments, how that do this week? Um, that's a way to habituate. I don't, I don't think it matters so much the exact cadence, but that there is a predictable cadence and that it's adhered to. And last but not least, I had a whole bunch of uh, fill in the blanks to go through, but I know your time is limited. So no, let's do them. Let's do them. Do them. Okay, let's do them. I like fill in the blanks. Okay, these are these will go quick. So, one when if I won the lottery, the first thing I would do is. Uh, wow! If I won a lottery, (laughs) if I won the lottery, the first thing I would do is um. I actually don't know the answer to that question. I, 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 mean, I, I think that what I would do would be um, – honestly, I'll tell you what came to my head. It's not noble. Uh, not tell anyone. Right. <laughs> honestly, that's what came to my, that's what came to my head. Not like, Dan so Pink I, I, plays I, the lottery? Not go, oh, yeah, yeah. Not, oh my God. I thought that guy knew something about math. He's a kid. Um, no, I just I – wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anybody. Yeah, I'd be a, li- that, I'd be a little bit – I'd be a little bit wigged out if I <laughs> – if I, if I won the lottery, like I wouldn't like some people would want to shout it from the rooftops. I would, you know, sequester <laughs> myself in a, in a, in a quiet room with my wife and whisper to her. So no one could hear. <laughs> I understand. All right. One thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. Okay. I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you my honest answers here rather than like, not that I haven't been giving you honest answers before. I'm just going to give you the first answer. Well, I don't want dishonest answers. No, 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 no. (laughs) But what I want to do is actually, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to treat this uh, almost in a therapeutic way. So I'm just going to give you whatever first answer comes to my head, whether it reflects reflects well on me or not. Mm -hmm. So give me the question again. I'll tell you the answer that pops in my head. The one thing that I, that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is. Wine. Good, good answer. One yeah. thing I one thing I wish I had learned about money growing up is the uh, the the power of uh, of compounding interest and starting early. When I donate, I like to give to uh, uh, institutions in my own community that make a, a material difference in people's lives. So when our charitable giving is focused very much around. Uh, we live in Washington D.C. Very much around uh, charities like Martha's Table, which which provides meals for the homeless, uh, Food and Fringe, which delivers meals to homebound people, Bread for the City. So things that really matter to individual people in my community. 
Awesome. And last but not least, I'm Daniel Pink. I'm so money because. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so money because um, um, I have a 22 step commute to work each day rather than being stuck in my car. And that saves a lot of time for sure. Thank you so much, Daniel Pink. Your new book is called When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, producer. It was a lot of fun. To learn more about Dan, visit danpink.com. He's on Twitter at Daniel Pink. And the book again is called When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. If you missed any of this, just head over to somoneypodcast.com where you can grab the link, you can share the episode, you can download the transcript. You can also click on Ask Farnoosh and leave me your questions for the Friday episodes and there also let me know if you'd like to co-host. But better yet, go to Instagram. That's where I'm hanging out a lot these days at Farnoosh Tarabi. Follow me there, direct message me, your questions, your thoughts, your feedback, and more likely I'll get back sooner than anywhere else. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. Money.